Well, we are glad you're here on this Memorial Day weekend, and we are looking forward to a great uh, picnic together right after the service. And I know that they've got all sorts of hamburgers and fixins, and the ladies uh, have a dessert auction that hopefully you'll go over and bid on, and that sets them up for all of their ladies' events and their ladies' retreats later in the year, and, and so make sure you come over for that. On this Memorial Day weekend, we're in the final week of our series called Proven, and we've talked about three things already, proving our words, proving our love, and proving God's will. Today, we're going to deal with proving God's promises. Our life group saw this morning that there are over 5,000 divine promises that are revealed in Scripture. Some of them are unconditional promises, like God's love for His children and eternal security for the saints. Uh, some are conditional promises that include a human responsibility. And even though God always does His part, sometimes we fail to do our part. Our reading this morning is in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 7. And if you head that way, 1 Samuel chapter 7, even though our passage is in 1 Samuel, uh, the, the event we're talking about happened during the time of what is called the Judges, when Israel had no king. And Scripture says that every person did what seemed right in his own eyes, and, and the words of God were not kept like they should have been. Israel went through a continuous cycle of sin against God and then bondage to their enemies. And then they would repent of their sin and find deliverance from God. And as 1 Samuel 7 begins, Israel is once again in bondage, this time to the Philistines. And the final judge, a prophet named Samuel, is the one that God has sent to help them. And so here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll begin at verse number 1. And the men of Kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath Jerem that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. But Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with the great thunder on that day upon the Philistines, and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah, and pursued the Philistines, and spoke them until they came unto beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen, 
had called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Today we're going to talk about God's promises. Father, would you work today in our midst? We thank you for each one who's here. And I know that the travel season has begun for summer and many are away from us and uh, have heard of some who are out sick today. I pray that you'd bring them back quickly to us. I pray that you would unite the hearts of each of us who are here together that we might receive your word and uh, get exactly what you'd have for us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You know, God has revealed his promises to us in many ways, and he has showed us his promises even through creation itself. Romans 1 says that all the things of God can be understood from creation. And if you don't believe that, uh, go outside, get up on a ladder, step onto the roof, and then jump. Okay? And, and you're, you will fall. And if you think that uh, that's just a fluke, then try it again. Okay? And if you think that's a fluke, try it again. And we'd like to see you with a broken leg and another broken leg and a broken arm and a broken arm. That, because it, God's promises are evident in the laws of nature. If you plant a bean seed, you'll grow a bean plant. God's promises are evident in the laws of the harvest. See, the, the laws of God that, that he has given us in nature, they do not fail. We can rely on them. That's why we fly airplanes. Yeah, no, not me personally, but pilots. And yeah, that's why uh, ships can go on the water because of the laws of nature. You can prove God's promises by nature itself, but you can also prove God's promises by the testimonies of people who have lived before us. The heroes of the faith who are listed in Scripture. Heroes of the faith who have lived since the time of Christ. And perhaps you even have a personal story of how God's promises have been real in your own life. I love that last verse of the Gospel of John, where it says that if all the things were written that Jesus did, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. That's because God's promises have been real to billions upon billions of people, and their stories are legitimate, and they're real, and maybe you have one of those stories, and I hope that you do. Because his words will never fail, God openly invites us, the human race, and especially his children, to prove whether or not his promises are true. And we can taste and see that the Lord is good. It tells us in Psalm 34. We can prove his truth by living in faith. But, you know, this always does require faith. Abraham didn't receive information about the promised land until after he had left his homeland. Moses didn't have his walking stick turn into a snake until after he threw it on the ground. Uh, the widow woman of Zarephath didn't receive the meal and the oil until after she had committed to make Elijah a cake. And you don't get to reap the field until after you've planted it. Listen to what God says in Malachi 3. Bring ye all the tithe into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now. Get those words? Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall be room enough to receive it. The blessings of God come after the acts of faith that we offer. And so many people never receive God's ultimate blessings for their lives because 
They want to experience God's goodness before they commit. They reverse the relationship. Society tells us that uh, young people, you don't have to wait till after you're married to have relations, that you can do that before and experiment and enjoy, but it comes after. God's benefits and blessings always come after our acts of faith. And if people don't want to wait till after, and I just tell you, in God's law, in God's economy, that's not the way it works. God says you have to wait till after your act of faith. God's promises have natural and spiritual laws attached to them. And Jesus even gave promises in the New Testament that were this way. Give, and it shall be given unto you. So it's after you give. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. The results of the promises come after the faith steps. Well, the Israelites in 1 Samuel 7 had strayed from God once again. And now they wanted God to turn the situation around. We're going to see this morning that God's promises would only go into effect after their acts of faith. They had to prove whether or not God's words would work in their lives. It had to be a personal proof of God's promises. Ebenezer was the place in 1 Samuel 4 where the ark of God had been taken by the Philistines. It was a stone uh, there in the countryside. It's also mentioned in chapter 5. And in chapter 7, we're going to see today that Samuel, memorial, he memorialized this place, this stone, for all future generations, and he named it the Stone of Help. Now, first, I want to understand today, in your notes, in the notes provided in your bulletin, if you'd like to follow along, the first thing we'd like to see is the road to Ebenezer. The road to Ebenezer. Ebenezer is the name of the Stone of Help that Samuel named. And I want you to look at the wording again at verse number two. It says at the end of the verse, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They mourned after the Lord. They desired God to be in their lives. They yearned for God's presence to return to their lives. The ark of, the ark of God had been taken by the Philistines and then returned to the Israelites. And after God killed 50,700 men of Beth Shemesh for looking inside the ark, most of the Israelites wanted nothing to do with the ark, and, and they sat it in a house in Kirjath-Jerim for 20 years. And many of the Israelites uh, were superstitious, and, and they thought that the ark of God was God's presence. And so they were worshiping the ark of God, but they weren't worshiping the God of the ark. And now we see that they decided, hey, maybe we need God back into our lives. And maybe we need more uh, than just a symbol. We need the God of the ark. And America today, we don't just need the symbols of God's presence. We actually need God's presence more than ever before. Symbols aren't going to do us any good. We need God's help. And we have to get to a point as American Christians where we yearn for God where we yearn for his presence, where we mourn after God, where we use this Bible term, lament after God. Now, Jeremiah gave lamentations. If you've ever read that tiny book right after Jeremiah, it's a book where he's, his heart and his soul were poured into speaking to God and weeping before God. He was called the weeping prophet. 
because he mourned and he lamented before God. The fact that they were yearning for God was a starting point to revival. But that's all it was. There was nothing more. See, you can yearn for a good relationship with your spouse, but there has to be some follow-through for that to happen. Okay, If you yearn for it, but you don't ever follow through, it's not going to be a happy relationship. You can desire and you can yearn to be in the decathlon in the 2020 Olympics. But if you keep sitting on the couch and eating cheese puffs, okay, I'm just telling you, it's not going to happen. There has to be follow through. What we yearn for and what actually happens are two different things. And so many times in American Christianity, in modern Christianity, really in a lot of places in the world, it seems that people think that desiring God... And wanting his blessings is enough. And feeling like I love God is enough. And staying in tune with my spiritual emotions is enough. Now those things are important, but they're not enough. Lamenting and yearning are a starting place. But there has to be something more to get to Ebenezer. And so the road to Ebenezer started with this yearning. It started with this lamenting, this Morning, but we see that there was a resistance to Ebenezer. That's the second part of our message today. Look at verse number three. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord, if you really want God in your life, if you really are on the road to help from God, if you want to do this with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. And prepare your hearts unto the Lord. Now catch this next phrase. It's so huge. And serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. See, longing after God is the right step. But Samuel reminded them that there had to be another step. And it had to be this real repentance, this authentic turning yeah, he said, if you're going to return to God, get rid of the idols and cultivate your heart to follow God and only God because God has to sit exclusively on the throne of your hearts. The resistance to Ebenezer was a lack of authentic repentance. Here was a group of people that said, we really want God back. And then they would walk into their house and bow down to Ashtaroth. We really want God's blessings back, and we should bring the ark back to the tabernacle. And then they would walk into their house and fall down to the Philistine gods. They wanted God, but they also wanted their idols. They wanted it at the same time. There's a passage in Scripture. Yeah, as you get into the times of the kings, the northern tribes had gone away from God. And yeah, all of their kings were wicked kings. And finally, God gave them over to the Assyrians. And yeah, there's a chapter in 2 Kings, there in chapter 17, where the northern tribes have, have been taken away. And it says that they, they worship God and they served idols. And I'm telling you, it's impossible. You can't serve God and idols at the same time. And that's what Samuel's telling these people that you have to be in tune with God to the point where he's all you're focused on. Now, verse 4 reveals some action steps that they began to take. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth 
and serve the Lord only. So they got the message from verse 3, serve him only. And now they serve God only. 140 years after this, God would give to Solomon another conditional promise. And you've probably heard this one before. In 2 Chronicles 7, he said, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. There had to be a turning. There had to be a repentance. Repentance had to be combined with desire. There had to be a turning away from their sins. You know, in our time, in modern days, there is so much resistance toward fully following God. There are more idols and impediments to serving God than there have ever been. And God often takes a back seat, uh, not to necessarily to bad things, but to good things that are competing for, his, for our attention to Him. Yeah, sporting events and concerts and entertainment in movies and television and smartphones and social networking and youth sports leagues uh, now have their games on Sunday, believe it or not. And it's, it's amazing how many of God's people trade things that might seem good for what's best. And, and they offer these things on the altar and then say that they want to love God at the same time. And God's word tells us that you've got to have God as the exclusive thing in your life. The devil's lie that is told by false teachers all the time is that you can have God and everything you want at the same time. The prosperity gospel says if you love God, God's going to give you a mansion to live in on this earth, and he's going to give you a great job. And I read the Bible, and I find that Paul had to count everything as loss to follow Christ. And he was stoned, and he was shipwrecked, and he was beaten with a cat of nine tails. Jesus said that uh, those who follow him would have to forsake all to do it. He said that no man can serve two masters, and that we can't serve God and mammon or the world at the same time. And I'm telling you that the gospel is not really the gospel if there's no repentance attached to it. Jesus said it this way, except you repent you shall all likewise perish. Now, if you can sign up for salvation and live the same exact way you've been living, it's not salvation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things are become new. The resistance to Ebenezer was authentic repentance. And if you want God's help, then you're going to have to forsake some things and serve him only. Look at verse number five. Samuel said, so they put their idols away, and Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. During the time of the judges and the prophets, the people needed a mediator to get to God. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And said there, we have sinned against the Lord. So they owned up to their sin. Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard the children of Israel were gathered together in Mizpah, so they gathered together for a religious feast. They gathered together to repent to God. They gathered together for a time of, of worship and fasting and prayer. 
But when the Philistines saw it, they thought, you know what? They're coming to fight us. And when the Philistines heard of it, they gathered together to go to war. And the people fell down before Samuel in verse 8 and said, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. The congregation of Israel got extremely serious about following God. And yet, when they heard that the Philistines were responding with an army, it made them afraid. And they asked Samuel to cry out to God for help. Now the question was, had the resistance to God's help been overcome? See, a lot of people want God's help, but they're not willing to repent. Right, there are lots of people who say, boy, if I could just get a ticket to heaven and never have to do anything, that'd be nice. But Jesus said, you have to repent. You have to turn your heart toward God. You have to release the things that are important to you and say, Jesus, you're important to me. And we see what happens next in verses 9 through 11, the revelation at Ebenezer. Samuel took this lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, and he began to pray for the people. And I love what it says at the end of verse number 9. And the Lord heard him. The Lord heard him. God's promises for us are so clear, and they're so true. And when we come before God with authentic, single-minded hearts, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, that we have the petitions we desired of him, it tells us in 1 John. So here these people are. And as he's praying and as he's offering the bird offering, the Philistines came roaring into battle. And God roared louder. Okay, I don't know if you've ever experienced thunder so loud that it knocked you to the ground. They did. All right? God thundered on them so loudly that the Philistines were knocked out by it, and they were discomfited by it. That means they were taken out. All right, so, so God thundered. God showed up. God heard the penitent cries of his people and revealed his great power with this massive thunder on the Philistines. God wanted his people to know that he is listening, that if we draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to us. If we take action steps toward him, he will reveal his rewards to us. His promises have been given for us to prove. The children of Israel had been sitting on God's promises for 20 years doing nothing. And there came a time where they said, boy, we really need God back in our culture. And I, I sense in the United States that there is a movement of people and not just devout followers of Jesus, but people throughout our nation who said, you know what, maybe it's time we let God back into our nation. And maybe it's time that we allowed the name Jesus to go back into our schools. And maybe it's time that we allowed the, the name of God and the principles and the promises of God's word to come back into our culture. I tell you, humanism's target is anything that has to do with God. They're going to do their best to wipe it out. All order, all law, all respect for authority, anything that has to do with God's word, anything that has to do with God's son, they're after it. And we can say 
we really want God back. But until Christians, until people in the house of God, until people who are called God's children, until we repent of our own sins, God's not going to change anything. My people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. And here we are expecting the liberal progressives to repent. I'm telling you, it's not going to happen until we repent. Until we come before God and say, God, we have traded a lot of things out for you. We've served a lot of things besides you. God's not going to work. But he worked here and he revealed himself. There was a revelation that took place at Ebenezer. And that leads us to this final part. And I really want to spend a few minutes on this, the remembrance at Ebenezer. Samuel took this stone. It was in between Mizpah where they worshipped and, and another village called Shen. And he called it Ebenezer. And his explanation in Hebrew was, Hitherto the Lord hath helped us. God has helped us here. And it was called the stone of help. And Samuel placed the Ebenezer stone as a constant memorial of the Lord's willingness to help a consecrated people. Every time these people, every time their descendants walked by this stone, Samuel wanted it to be thought of as the stone of help, uh, as the place where God intervened on behalf of his people. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. As Americans, we have some well-known memorials, and I'm sure many of you have been privileged to visit some of them during your lifetime. In a couple of weeks, our, our Dominican team will be flying back from our mission trip, and we have a layover in Washington, D.C. that's about 10 hours long. And uh, So we're going to rent a van, and we're going to go see all the memorials late at night uh, when they're still open, and you walk through the Lincoln Memorial and Jefferson Memorial and the World War II Memorial, uh, you pass by the Vietnam Wall and the Korean War Memorial, uh, the Iwo Jima Marine Corps Memorial, you know, memorials are important to develop patriotism in the next generation. But when young people don't learn our history, they don't have any foundation on which to live their own lives as citizens. And when people come into our country from places all over the world and they don't care about our history, then they're not going to have any foundation to understand the liberty and the cost of our liberty. And we're seeing what happens right now when history is revised and when history is forgotten. When that happens, we gain a class of citizens who are ingrates because they are ignorant of the sacrifice that those freedoms cost. And on Memorial Day, we remember every year the cost of our freedom. We remember the men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice of their lives to obtain our freedom. A couple years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of driving to the Normandy coast in France to visit sites associated with the D-Day landings that took place in June of 1944, almost 73 years ago. We first stopped at the tiny town of Santa Maria Glis, where men from the 82nd Airborne 
dropped just after midnight from a moonless sky into territory covered with German soldiers. And there's a, a memorial uh, even on the church uh, where uh, one of the men dropped and uh, his parachute got stuck on the side of the church there. He hung there all night and he went deaf because of the bell ringing the whole night through, but he survived. And there's a memorial that's still there at that church. As they came down in, the, in their parachutes, many of them were killed before they ever hit the ground. And that's where those first ones dropped from the sky. About 20 kilometers from there are the cliffs of Huanduoc, where the 2nd Rangers Battalion stormed the cliffs in some places 200 feet high to capture the large German guns at the top. And from those guns at the top of the cliff, the German army could easily shoot landing craft. They were going to Utah Beach on the left and Omaha Beach on the right. Over 60% of our men were lost in the struggle as they would shoot grappling hooks to the top and they would begin to climb only to be cut or shot down. And uh, they kept going up again and again. 225 of the rangers started, only 90 of them survived it, made it to the top. And once they got up there, they found that the large German guns weren't even there. Rommel had moved them a mile away. But we went inside uh, of one of the massive concrete bunkers that were built to hold those guns. Bunkers that were only surrendered after the Allied forces used flamethrowers to drive out the German soldiers. And as we walked through there, uh, through the landscape, there are hundreds upon hundreds of craters the size of houses where the shells from the ships uh, just pounded that shore. Wherever you walk, those craters are everywhere. And Amy and I then walked on to Omaha Beach, a place where way too many 18 and 19 and 20-year-old American boys gave their lives. I've always loved history, and I've read books, and I've seen documentaries and had pictures. But like so many things, it's impossible to truly appreciate until you're there in person. And, and we walked through the American cemetery on the coast there that overlooks the beach, where almost 9,400 of our soldiers are buried. It is one of the most quiet and beautiful places I've ever been. It's sobering. Uh, to give the least descriptive word I could give. That cemetery is tiny compared to Arlington Cemetery, but it is even more manicured and immaculate. And most Americans still think of soldiers as heroes, and that cemetery is a memorial to the cost of freedom. And we have memorials as Americans to remind us of the price that's been paid. And uh, we're saddened, I, I think, as Americans especially those who have served, are many times saddened by the apathy in our culture toward those memorials and toward those who have given their lives. But you know, just like our memorials that are temporal, the ones that have to do with this earth and with this nation, there are memorials that are spiritual. There are godly memorials that we need in our lives. And Samuel set a memorial to remind the Israelites. And I believe that we need spiritual memorials in our lives. 
We need spiritual memorials in our homes. We need reminders to ourselves and to our family, this is what God did for us. And God keeps his promises, and God's power is infinite. And this is the prayer that God answered for us, and this is the path that God led us toward. We need to set some real-life memorials, some reminders of how great God is, not just to other people, but you personally. You will never grow to be what God wants you to be until God becomes a personal God to you. Until his promises become personal to you. You can't live off of your uncle's promises and be a good Christian. You can't live off your mentor's promises and be a good Christian. You have to discover and prove God's promises for yourself. And when you do, you will be amazed that God always follows through. He always does. That's today's big truth. God has revealed his promises to humanity in a variety of ways. We can trust him because he's never failed. His words endure forever. You know, that's great for those who trust him. That's great for those who are his children. But that's horrible for those who deny him. See, there is no mention of a a holding place where uh, you get to go for a while and then decide, you know what, I don't really like this. I think I'll choose God now. That's not in the scripture anywhere. Once you die having rejected Christ, there is no second chance. God's words are infinitely pure, whether they are to the good or to the evil. They are pure whether they're to the just or the unjust. And there are a whole lot of people who say things, crazy things. Well, I'm just not sure it's true. Well, I heard there are contradictions in the Bible. I don't believe there's a God. And here's the sad news. Those folks are going to prove God's promises to be true. When God says that every knee shall bow, let me tell you what that means. Every knee shall bow. That means that the most renowned, hateful atheist is going to bow before the Almighty God. And then he's going to spend eternity in hell. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is God. It's going to happen. God's promises are true to the just. They're true to the unjust. And while we see God's promises, this positive, wonderful thing... We need to see the other side of the coin. When Jesus said, he that believes is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, God's words will be proven true. Instead of proving the negative promises of God true, why not spend your life claiming the good ones? Wouldn't it be better if you just claim the good promises? When God says that those who give of their tithes will be abundantly blessed, jump in with both feet. When God says that the faithful man will abound with blessings, resolve to be faithful. When God says you should train up a child in the way he should go, set up your home and prepare your home to do just that. See, those things don't happen by accident. The rewards of God's promises We don't just stumble on those, okay? 
we have to actually follow through by faith. We actually have to do what God's told us to do. God's promises are going to come true. Whether you believe them or not, whether you buy into them or not. And once again, wouldn't it be easier and better if you determined to live out your faith? And that brings us to today's faith challenge because this is where really what it comes down to. Are you willing to prove God's promises by following through in your part? God says, they that honor me, I will honor. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh unto you. The question is, what will I do with God's promises? What will I do with God's promises? And we basically have three choices. Okay, we could ignore them. It would be really foolish for us to do. It would kind of be like if you had a, a Jaguar and a Ferrari in your garage and you never took them out. Okay, it's kind of your loss. It's just the way it is with God's people, with God's promises. So many times we ignore them. If there are 5,000 promises in God's word, you know what we ought to do? We ought to go find them. We ought to go search them out and say, listen, if God promised something, I want in on that. I want everything he's given me. But we could choose to just ignore them. The other thing we could do, and I think this is what a lot of us do, we say that we believe them, but we refuse to live them. And we say things and we buy these the little uh, book that's God's promises and, and uh, we have looked some up and we even post them online sometimes. I'm telling you, uh, knowing what God's promises are and living them by faith are sometimes two different things. So we could ignore them. We could say we love God's promises and, and then just not live them. Or the third option, and this is the best one, we could prove God's promises and receive abundant blessings. And we could come on God's promises and say, God, did you really promise this? Boy, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to jump into this one. And I'm going to do what you've told me to do. And yeah, those really are the options. You know, as we've talked about in this series, it's time for us to step up as believers and prove our words. To let our yea be yea and to let our nay be nay. It's time for us to step up as believers and to prove our love. Our love for God and our love for others. Not just words, but deed and truth. It's time for us as believers to step up and understand how God has proved and will prove his will for our lives. If we will submit our lives to him, he will pave the way for our future. And then today, as we've talked about, it's time for us to prove God's promises and to follow through on God, what God's told us to do. Let's bow in prayer this morning.